Have you ever heard warnings about driving on flooded roads? Anybody ever noticed that? I, I see them on TV and on social media all the time. Warnings about riding on flooded roads. They say, turn around, don't drown. That's their, the current uh, iteration of it. You know, it's a little, little rhyme. But have you ever wondered why it's such a big deal? You know, if it's just a few inches of water running over the road. I mean, it's not like we're talking about a river, right? In some cases, it's way more than a few inches of water, even though it may look like it's just a little bit. But the thing is that just a few inches of water running over the road can have enough current that it can, can cause your car to lose its grip on the road. And you can get carried away off of the road into deeper water before you, before you can respond. And there in the deeper water, you'll drown. Flooded roads are really dangerous. But they remind us, and they remind me anyways, of the next in our list of respectable sins. The sin of a lack of self-control. The sin of a lack of self-control. You know, there's a verse in Proverbs, the last verse of chapter 25, and it says this, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. In ancient times, they built large stone walls around the city in order to protect the city from invaders. If you had a wall around your city and you had a, a large enough supply of food and, and fresh water inside the people inside the city could wait out an opposing army. Well, they sent word to their allies to come and and rescue them. But if a town or city didn't have a wall, it was completely at the mercy of its enemies. Totally vulnerable. Had no defense whatsoever. And Solomon uses that picture, and he says here that a man or a woman, or frankly even a child who does not have self-control. The rule of his spirit, Solomon says, does not have self-control, is just as defenseless as a city that has no wall. I suppose, since we don't have walled cities today, you might just say it's just as defenseless as a house with no front door. Leave it wide open. Let anybody come in who wants If you can't control your spirit, if you don't have any control over your impulses, if you don't have the ability to say no to your desires and to your emotions, then you're completely vulnerable to sinful temptations. And so the sin of self-control is like, like the sin of selfishness that we looked at last week, is rarely alone. One indulgence leads to another And before you know it, you're being swept away in a current of domination, of addiction even, of bondage to your desires. And and we're talking, and I'm talking here, not just about sinful desires, because the truth of the matter is that this issue of self-control pertains not just to areas of sinfulness, but even to things that are not sinful. And so this is part of the issue that we need to consider today because 
Again, the lack of self-control involves both desires for good and desires for evil. Jerry Bridges defines self-control this way in his book, Respectable Sins. A governance or prudent control over one's desires, cravings, impulses, emotions, and passions. Let me read that again. Self-control is a governance or prudent control over one's desires, cravings, impulses, emotions, and passions. Bridges goes on to say this, it is saying no when we should say no. It is moderation in legitimate desires and activities and absolute restraint in areas that are clearly sinful. So I'm going to ask you this morning, do you have control over your desires, over your cravings, over your impulses, over your emotions, over your passions? Or do they control you? That's really the question that we have to ask today. Now, it's not so simple as just saying no to yourself and your desires, because as we're going to see, self-control is a spiritual matter. It's a matter for every Christian, and especially for those who are in leadership. You have your Bible open to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, Paul begins this letter, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Let's pray and ask God's help uh, and uh, strength uh, as we uh, look into his word this morning. Lord, we thank you again for the privilege of gathering together in this place and with these people today. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that we have the privilege of owning your word, of reading it readily. Thank you that you have blessed us so richly with your, with your word, your truth. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to submit to the truth. Help us to humble ourselves and to put ourselves under the authority of your word because it is true. Lord, help me as I speak that I would be your instrument because, again, Lord, I, I do not want to be an impediment. And I don't want this to be about me and my authority because it's not. Help us all, each one of us, to submit to your truth. And I pray that you would guide us in your word today. And thank you for what you're going to do as we examine it in Jesus' name. Amen. Titus was a young man who traveled and served with the Apostle Paul. And this letter 
was written to him to explain what he was supposed to do on the island of Crete. Um, those of you who've been with us for a while may remember some of this. We, we went through the book of Titus uh, from beginning to end over the course of about 13 weeks uh, back in the end of 2017. And uh, uh, as we, we looked at this, Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete and he left him there because the churches of Crete were in disarray. They needed proper leadership training and Titus was the man for the job. So the first thing that Paul writes in this very brief letter is a list of qualifications. Qualifications for pastors. Now he uses the term elders. We read there in uh, verse 5 that that Titus is to appoint elders in every city. He uses the word elders. Elders is one of three terms that is used in the New Testament to describe the office of pastor. The word pastor is another one. Pastor means shepherd. And then the word bishop is the third term. That's a word that means overseer. He's going to actually use the word elder and the word bishop in this passage. But he speaks here about, he's speaking here about pastors, about leaders in the church, the, the men who are serving in these positions of leadership in the church. Notice what kind of men ought to be appointed to positions of leadership in the church. Notice, look there with me in verse 6. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. I suppose I shouldn't, I don't feel like I should have to say this, but on Mother's Day, I'll say this, that you notice very clearly that Paul indicates that this is a position uh, that belongs to a man and not a woman. He specifically identifies this. If a man uh, is blameless... And he, he's specific in his terminology here. There are a lot of people today that have gotten confused about this. I, I, I shouldn't say confused. There are some who are confused about this. There are many who are just blatantly ignoring what Scripture teaches on this subject and suggesting that man doesn't really mean man. It really just can be anyone that there's no difference between men and women uh, when it comes to uh, positions of pastoral authority. The Scriptures here clearly indicate otherwise. I'm not... That's not my goal this morning. I just thought I would point that one out. But, it, but along the way here, in this list of things that we looked at here, just read, twice, Titus says specifically that a pastor must be blameless. And that means he is to have uh, a good reputation, unable to be accused of wrongdoing. And, and the two uses here, Titus is emphasizing both in his personal life and in his public life. And so both things are in view here. The Titus says the pastor must be a person who is blameless, a good reputation. Specifically then, he explains what that looks like. He must be a faithful husband and father, not selfish or irritable. We talked about the sin of selfishness last week. That's a qualification for a pastor, not being selfish. We will talk about the sin of irritability next week. 
that's another one. Um, so that's another issue that, that pastors must not be um, irritable. Not an alcoholic, he says. Not greedy, but generous. A lover of good things who is able to control his mind and his body in order to live in devotion to God. All of this, Paul says, is necessary so that the pastor can teach right doctrine in order to call others to obedience and rebuke those who are living in sin. This is the the qualifications. And, And he emphasizes here the importance of the pastor having self control. He uses a lot of different terms, but they all kind of touch on that same issue. He cannot be dominated by anything else, but must be able to uh, control himself. Now look at verse 10. Because now uh, he explains some of the reason behind this more. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, that's speaking about Jews, whose mouths must be stopped who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. A big part of Paul's concern here is that the people of Crete uh, have a specific disposition, and he's concerned about their influence on the church. He says there are many who refuse to submit to authority and they speak vain or empty and false things. They corrupt the teaching of the gospel of Christ and they do it for monetary gain. So all of this is going on. Of course, we see plenty of that in our day as well. People who are more than willing to preach something they call the gospel in order to get rich. But then Paul quotes this Cretan poet, and that's kind of interesting. He he quotes a Cretan poet from several hundred years before his time who wrote this, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I mean, that's one way to um, endear yourself to people is to call them liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. But that's what he does. And he says this is a true description of the people. Paul says, this is a true description of the people on Crete. They are this way. They have absolutely no self-control. They live according to their animal-like desires. They're just like animals. They, They just have an impulse and they act on their impulse. Without ever thinking about or evaluating or controlling themselves, they just react. They do whatever comes naturally. And he says, they seek only to please themselves. Even though they claim to know God, he says their works betray them. Prove that they are vile, dishonorable, and utterly disqualified for the service of the true God. And so 
as Paul is talking to Titus here, he's telling him that it's so important to have good, qualified men serving as pastors. That's vital to the health of the church. It's vital to the purity of the gospel on Crete. But Paul also expects Titus to make an impact on the people of the church and not just its leaders. So look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says this, but as for you, speaking to Titus now. So Titus, go appoint elders. That's what their job is going to be. But here's your job, Titus. Here's what you're supposed to do in the meantime. Speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. In other words, Titus, you've got some things you need to teach. Titus, there's some things you need to be teaching. Now, notice what he's going to do here. In the next verses, he's not going to focus so much on the things, but on the people that Titus is going to teach. Right? Because Titus is supposed to teach these people the true doctrines, the true uh, teachings of the faith, so that it will produce certain effects in the people. And notice, he starts off here speaking about the older men. So that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants, this is slaves, to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. From the older men, to the older women, to the young women, to the young men, and even to the slaves. (coughs) Paul expects every Christian to live a life of devotion to God. Older men are responsible to set an example of sobriety, in mind and life. They are to exercise sound judgment and decision making. They are to demonstrate moderation in all areas of life. Paul says, Titus, that's your job. Teach these men, the older men, so that they can be self-controlled, exercise moderation, good judgment. They can set an example. And then older women. Older women are to live and act the same as the older men with moderation, with self-discipline, not being controlled by alcohol or other impulsive desires. Why? So that they may teach what is good. The young women are to learn to be sober-minded themselves, self-controlled, at peace with the role and responsibilities of homemaking and motherhood. Young men are to have the same kind of self-discipline thinking as all the rest. And they're called here to pursue a life of holiness that can support a testimony of blamelessness for the sake of Christ and the gospel. By the way, let me just say this about this passage. I think this is important. I think this is a part of what Paul is getting at. If there's a dearth of qualified men to serve as elders, as pastors, 
It is the responsibility of the church to teach the young men the true doctrines of the word of God so that they will live a life of blamelessness. So that they will be able then to serve as leaders and pastors and elders in the church. That's the job of the church. Not for us to look outside of our church, but for us to look within our church and train the young men in our congregation that they would grow to become mature, blameless, living holy lives who can then serve in the church. That's important. You want an example of that? Just go over to uh, Kenosha and talk to Pastor John because that's what they do, right? They work with the inner city there. They work in the inner city of Racine in Kenosha. And by the time time they see a guy who's 18 or 20 years old, it's too late for him to serve in most cases. He's already disqualified himself. There's no way he could be blameless. He's already blown that. So what do they do? They, They start with children. And they reach the children and then they work with the children and they try to raise the children and they try to help, help guide those children from childhood to grow into maturity of, of godliness and blamelessness who can serve. That's hard to do. It's a long process. But it's not just something that they need in the inner city over in Kenosha and Racine and Milwaukee. It's something we need to be doing here. Notice he says slaves also are to live in submission and obedience. What a radical thing to say in a day like ours. Slaves, you're to submit to your master and obey, not to be self-willed, but serve your master as pleasing to the Lord. Now, you may not notice very easily in the English translations of the Bible that we read, but there is a common thread woven throughout these first two chapters of the letter. It's much more apparent in Greek, which was the language this was written in. I don't say that to, to, to suggest you can't understand this without knowing Greek or anything like that. I'm just, just mentioning that there is a thread that Paul weaves through here that's very important. And, and it's this, that Paul is very concerned that every believer exercise the virtue of self-control. He uses a variation of the same term for each one of these distinct groups and peoples. Emphasizing the importance of self-control. It begins with the church leaders and it spreads through the entire body of the church here in Titus 1 and 2. But this is where this presents to us a little bit of a challenge. Because the way most of us think about the idea of self-control is that self-control is a function of my willpower, right? My personal willpower, my my ability to just say no to things, um, that's self-control. People seem to have been born. Some people seem to have been born with with a greater natural ability to say no to themselves and their desires. Other people just seem to lack impulse control altogether. I'm sure you've met people like that. They just, it's almost as if they cannot control themselves in any way. It's the first thing that comes to mind, comes out their mouth. Every idea that pops into their head, they do. They just can't seem to have any sort of control or filter whatsoever. Most of us, I think, are somewhere in between. We seem to be somewhere in between. We have certain areas of weakness where we tend to give in. And maybe other areas of strength. For some people, this is the area of food and drink. 
We lack the ability to say no to chocolate or snacks or soda or alcohol or something, whatever it is. For others, it's the area of money. Uh, We lack the ability to say no to those new shoes or that new car or truck or the new gadget, whatever it is. For some, it's the area of our tongue. We lack the ability to stay quiet when it comes to the latest rumor or when angry or hurtful words come bubbling up in an instantaneous reaction. For some of us, it's the area of our eyes. We lack the ability to look away from a beautiful man or woman, their figure, or their, our minds readily jump to, to, to fantasies at the slightest provocation. Now, some of you may be weak in one of these areas and strong in others. And I'm not meant to be exhaustive. I'm just trying to illustrate some of the areas. But as we think about this, most of us have areas, particular areas, where we just tend to not be able to control ourselves as easily as others. Now, there's a question that this brings up. Because, again, because we have varying strengths here when it comes to this issue of self-control, or willpower as we think of it, How can Paul say to all believers, from pastors to the older men to the older women, the young men and the young women, how can he say to all that we ought to live with self-control? You see, our thinking and our understanding of self-control, I think in a lot of cases is not really accurate. Because we connect it to to our natural willpower, and that's not what Paul does here. He explains how it is that he is calling every single one of us to self-control in the next verses. Look with me at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, speaking to Titus here, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. God's grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's what Paul says there in verse 11. In other words, the Lord from heaven has poured out His saving grace in the world so that all of those who believe on Jesus Christ may be saved from their sins and receive new life in Him. It's available to each and every one of you. You can trust in Jesus Christ today and your sins can be forgiven and you can be uh, made right with God. It's grace. That means it's unearned It's unmerited favor. God gives this. He has poured this out. He has made this available to you that that freely of His grace, He will forgive your sins. He will give you eternal life. Freely. That's what grace means. It's unearned. It's unmerited. And Paul says, this is the grace of salvation. It is not something that we can earn or accomplish for ourselves. It is something that God must do in us and for us. He saves us by His wonderful grace, freely given to all who believe in the Lord Jesus 
who died for our sins and rose again, conquering sin and conquering death. This is the wonderful message of the gospel, the the life-changing message of salvation. We've studied this just recently in some bit of depth just a few weeks ago. Back on Easter Sunday and then the following Sunday, we looked at the gospel and this message of salvation from 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 6. But notice here that Paul is not just focused on the issue of salvation from sin. Yes, he speaks about that. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. But he goes on because the grace of God does more than just save us from our sins. The grace of God, Paul says, also teaches us. Now, if you wanted to think back to the messages that that we preached back in April... In keeping with that, we could say this way. We could put what Paul says here in the same context. We could say that, that the grace of God teaches us that when we are saved, our old man is crucified with Christ. Now Paul puts that negatively here. The grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. He's talking here about putting to death, that putting to death of the old man, that he was put to death on the cross. We, we looked at that in Romans chapter 6. And at the very same time, The very same moment when we were saved, our old man was put to death on the cross. Paul says, denying ungodliness, denying worldly lusts. When we were saved, at the same time, we were raised to new life in Christ. Paul puts that positively here. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. What's interesting here, and this is the the point of emphasis I want to get to, is that the word soberly, We should live soberly. That word soberly is part of that same thread that I said wove through the first two chapters. Some form of the word is used to describe each category of believers from pastors on down. As we consider what Paul says here, I want to make just some observations from these, from this, really from these last verses of this chapter about the virtue of self-control and the sin of lacking self-control. Because Paul makes some points here that are important. The first point is this. Self-control is for Christian believers. Self-control is for Christians. Paul says that self-control is not produced by human effort. Self-control is not produced by your willpower. So you say, well, some people just naturally have a stronger willpower and an ability to just say no to themselves. That's probably true. But that's irrelevant when we're talking about this issue. It's really not relevant at all. It doesn't matter what your natural ability or natural inclinations are. It doesn't matter. Okay, I'll give you an example. And I'm, I, don't, I don't use my wife as an example very often, but my wife likes chocolate. I'm not really a big fan of chocolate. Okay? Chocolate, not really a temptation for me. I don't struggle when it comes to eating chocolate. I can take it or leave it most of the time. My wife really does like chocolate. It's a lot harder for her to say no to chocolate. But the issue here, if we're talking about a sinful um, indulgence, a sinful giving ourselves over to that desire, both of us are called, when it comes to chocolate, to be disciplined to not be dominated by our desire for that food. 
So whether the desire is weak in me and strong in someone else, we both have the same responsibility on this matter to live in moderation when it comes to that particular issue. Now, I say that just because that's one example. Plenty of other examples that I could put myself on the other side. Right? I mean, broccoli. My wife hates broccoli. I like broccoli. Can you sinfully indulge in broccoli? I suppose you can. No, that's, that's a bad example. But anyways, I'm sorry. I'm just having a fun. The point here is your particular strengths and weaknesses are not important. And here's why. Because you cannot exercise biblical self-control apart from the grace of God. You cannot exercise biblical self-control apart from God's grace. It cannot be done. Now, that means if you're not a Christian here this morning... Because you've never humbled yourself before God. You've never confessed your sin and cried out to Him for mercy and for pardon. Then you will never be able to exercise self-control. Well, you might be able to control one area of your life or another. I mean, you, you can exercise willpower to control one, maybe one aspect of your life, at least for a while. But you will not be able to live in moderation in all areas of your life. That's what Paul is calling every single older men, older women, younger men, younger women, pastors, all of us, he's calling all of us to live that way. In moderation. Not just in one area, but in all areas. And if you don't know the Lord, if you have not received His grace in salvation by trusting in Jesus Christ, then you cannot exercise self-control. Not biblical self-control. You won't be able to do it. You need the grace of God. And so, of course, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never trusted in Him, then you can't even make the first step in the direction of self-control. It can't happen. Whatever efforts you put into trying to control one area of your life, some other area of your life is going to come out of control. You'll never be able to do it all at the same time. You cannot do it. It's impossible. We, in our Sunday school, have been going through church history for a while, and uh, we've at different times talked about some of the tendencies toward mo- uh, monastic living, going into living monasteries, monks and nuns and all that stuff. And we've talked about some of the tendencies that arose in the history of the church. Routinely, people said, I've got to get away from all the temptations and all the stuff. I've got to get o- go out someplace away from everything where I can just focus on being with God and I can be holy. And the biggest problem with that No matter how hard you try to clamp down an area of control in your life, to control everything in your life, you you cannot control your own desires. You can't. So you can try to strip away everything else, try to control everything, rigid self-discipline in food and in timing and in prayers and all this. And guess what? It still won't solve this problem. It won't work. Because it is something that demands the grace of God. That's what Paul says here. That it is the grace of God that teaches us self-control. Therefore, self-control is for Christian believers. Jerry Bridges puts it this way. He says, uh, we might say that self-control is not control by oneself through one's own willpower, 
but rather control of oneself through the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's not me controlling myself. It's myself being controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's biblical self-control. You must know God. And you must have His grace in order to have true biblical self-control. It is essential and it cannot be done otherwise. Secondly, another observation to make here. If self-control is for believers, if that's true, and it is, Paul says that, then it is a necessary part of our sanctification. What do I mean by that? Paul says that God's grace teaches us to live soberly with self-control so that it is a part of the ongoing process of change that begins in our lives when we trust Christ. You see, realize when you trust Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in Him this morning, when you trusted in Jesus Christ, your life began to change. It doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't happen all at once. It's a gradual process of change that begins when we trust in Jesus Christ and He saves us and He pours out His Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us and that Spirit of God then begins to work in us to change us. But guess how long that process lasts? It lasts until the day you die. I don't know how long that's going to be. For some people, that may only, they get saved, it might only be days, weeks, a few years, some of it might be decades. It could be your whole life. We don't know how long it's going to be. But that process continues. It continues until the day you die. When He saves us by His grace, He begins transforming us, begins changing us. That's what he's saying here. The grace of God doesn't just save us. It saves us and then it teaches us. It changes us. It transforms us. And one of the things it teaches us is self-control. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that as Christians we do not fight against flesh and blood enemies. But here's what he says. We fight against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Paul says there's a spiritual battle. Peter says, 1 Peter 2.11, our fleshly desires war against the soul. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, Paul tells us that our weapons of warfare are powerful. That they are able to cast down strongholds, and here's how they do it, by bringing every thought under the control of Christ. It's about control. It's about submission to Christ. Have no doubt this morning, that if you are saved, there is a battle waging over your soul. Sometimes we have the idea that that the, the, the devil wages a battle to keep people from being saved. And I agree, that's true. But you know, when you get saved, the devil continues to wage a battle for your soul. Peter says it there in, in, in 1 Peter 2, that your fleshly desires war against your soul. He's talking to Christians. Your own heart conspires against you. Your own desires conspire against you. There is a battle in you and a battle over your soul. On one side of that battle, we have the world, the flesh, and the devil. On the other side, we have the Holy Spirit. This battle is a battle for control. And it is a battle we must win. But here's the thing, and this is what, I wanna, what, I, what I'm trying to get at here. Paul says this in, in Philippians 1, verse 6, that it is a battle we're guaranteed to win as Christians. This is the good news, by the way. 
This is part of the work that God, that God is doing. Paul says this, Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who, which, who, uh, he who has begun a good work in you, that's saving you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That means that Jesus, who saves us, again, by his grace, then transforms us. Exactly what Paul is saying here in Titus 2. The grace that saves is the grace that teaches us. The grace that saves is the grace that transforms us. He who began the work in you will complete it. See? So here's the good news, right? There's a war going on. There's a battle going on. And self-control is at stake here. You will either be controlled by the Holy Spirit or you will be controlled by your desires and the sinful, uh, satanic influence of this world. That's the battle as a Christian. We must battle with our desires that seek to control us. But here's the thing. At the same time, we must trust in God's saving and sanctifying grace because it's through the grace of God that we are guaranteed we'll ultimately win the battle. The one who began this work in you will complete it. He will finish it. Know this, that there, there is coming a day, if you're a Christian, there is coming a day when the issue of self-control will be off the table, where you will ultimately and eternally live without ever, without ever losing control to some indulgence, to some desire, to some thought or imagination. That day is coming if you're a Christian. It's promised. It's guaranteed. Trust in it, but do battle today for it. Because this is where we're at now. We're not there yet. Now, thirdly, self-control is for Christian believers. Self-control is a necessary part of sanctification. It's what God is doing in our lives as Christians. But there's a third, and it's correlated to those two. Self-control is something we must teach and be taught. Self-control is something we must teach and be taught. Now, Now, how do I know this? Because all through these two chapters that we've seen, Paul is stressing the importance of teaching, exhorting, instructing. It's by pastors, but it's also by older men and older women. Why? So that the young men and the young women in the congregation can learn to live with self-control. This is, this is, again, this makes sense here. If self-control is part of our sanctification, if it's what is supposed to be happening naturally in our lives as Christians, as we grow in Christ, we develop, we grow in this, in this grace of self-control. If that's what's supposed to be happening, that we grow more and more temperate as we grow older in the Lord. Then we, as we grow older in the Lord and we grow more and more temperate, we then can teach others to become like us. To follow our example. Of course, this means that if we don't learn this, if we don't learn this discipline, if we don't grow in this grace, then we won't be able to teach others when we should. Paul says the older men need to to demonstrate this. The older women need to demonstrate this so that they can teach. So I'm not saying that every older, older man and older woman in the church is qualified to do this. Clearly they're not. But that's a failing that's a failure to grow in the grace of God that we ought to do. But the point here is that this is something that, that, that is supposed to be passed on. The problem with the people of Crete and Titus' day is they never learned this. They never learned to grow in self-control. And they were unable to teach others. Titus is a different kind of person, though. Titus had spent time with the Apostle Paul. 
Titus had learned from the Apostle Paul. He had watched the Apostle Paul who had grown in this grace of moderation and temperance and self-control. And then Titus himself learned this. And now Paul says, Titus, you go and you teach this to others. That's the process that's supposed to take place. As we grow in this grace of self-control, then we are to turn around and teach those who are coming behind us. All through this letter to Titus, Paul told him he's supposed to be teaching. Even in the last chapter of the, in chapter 3, and we weren't going to look at chapter 3 today, but even in the last chapter, he says, remind them. I want you to affirm constantly. Let our people learn. All through the letter to Titus, Paul is saying, teach them, exhort them, explain to them, uh, train them, instruct them. We must follow the example of others who have learned by God's grace to live in self-control. And then we have to teach those who are coming after us. This is a necessary Necessary thing in the church. You know, I, I'm not. It's not the be all end all, but I, one of the one of the things that we're that I've seen, um, you know, recently in the last number of years in the church in general, is a rise in um, churches doing uh, studies about financial wellness. You know, to, uh, helping people to learn to control their themselves when it comes to money. All right, one thing is that's an evidence of the fact that we've failed as churches. We've failed as Christians to grow in this discipline of self-control because as American Christians, we've gotten ourselves up to our eyeballs in debt and we've spent foolishly and we've, we've spent uh, impulsively and indulgently on ourselves rather than disciplining ourselves and saying no. And so therefore we get into debt and we've got all these problems. And so churches have seen a need for this. That we need to have seminars where we teach people. We need to have classes where we teach people how to, uh, how to have uh, you know, financial peace. That's not a bad thing for us to teach. I'm not saying that. But it does illustrate that there's a problem here. There's a, really ne- a real need for this because we've done a poor job of this. But this is part of it, right? As Christians, we've got to learn to control ourselves. And be controlled by the Spirit of God in this area. We've got to be controlled by the grace of God. We've got to be taught here. This is how the church is supposed to work. See? We learn from other more mature believers. And we grow in the grace of God so that when we are more mature, then we can turn around and teach others and share with them the grace that we have received from God. There's another thought that I have about this that I think is important. It's this, that you cannot separate yourself from the body of the church and expect to live in self-control. Because Paul is saying to to Titus here, there's a means by which this is supposed to happen, right? It happens within the church. So you can't separate yourself from the church and say, well, I'm just going to kind of go it alone as a Christian. I don't need the church. No, that's not true. Because it's in the fellowship of the church where one... There are older men and older women who can teach us younger men and younger women. There are pastors who can set an example and teach. And then there's younger men and women who can grow up in these graces that they can then turn around and teach. This is supposed to be happening all the time. That's how the church is supposed to operate. And if you want to separate yourself, say, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of be a Christian, I'll go on my own, I'll do my own thing, I don't really need the church, or I don't need to be a member of the church, I don't need to submit to the church. You're fooling yourself. You're cutting yourself off from this mechanism of teaching and training that that, that God intends here. You will not learn the discipline of self-control. You will not grow in the grace of self-control. If you cut yourself off from the church, you won't. 
But there's two sides of that coin. So not only is self-control something we have to teach and be taught, but this is important too. The lack of self-control is a sin that must be rebuked. And you knew I was going to get around to this at some point. We've got to talk about this. This is a sin. Paul tells Titus that pastors are to exhort and convict, in verse 9, the word convict there means rebuke, those who contradict. Confront them, rebuke them, call them out. Then he says that he is to rebuke sharply those Cretans in chapter 1, verse 13, who were corrupting the gospel. And then here in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. See, when someone in the church is living an out-of-control lifestyle, they must be rebuked on account of their sin. The glutton or drunkard must be rebuked for being controlled by his stomach. The careless spender must be rebuked for his poor stewardship of God's resources. The gossip or foul-mouthed person must be rebuked for his unbridled tongue. And the lustful man must be rebuked for committing adultery in his heart. Again, this is, this is why we need the fellowship of the church. We need the kind of close relationships that invite others to rebuke our sin. That invite others to say, hey, I see that you have a problem in this area. You're not controlling yourself here. There's some area of, where you're out of control. We need to welcome that. Invite someone to speak into our life. See, if you isolate yourself, your sin will go unchecked. And you will come under the dominating control of your flesh with its desires. That will inevitably happen. And all of us who are a part of the church must be courageous enough to confront one another when we see evidence of an imbalanced life. Now, there's one more observation I want to make from Paul's words here, and that is this, that self-control is motivated by the hope of Christ's return. It's motivated by the hope of Christ's return. Paul says here in chapter 2, verse 13, that God's grace teaches us to live with self-control in this present age while we look to the day when Christ appears again to redeem us unto himself. In other words, the Bible tells us that Christ is coming back. That he is going to complete his work on the earth. He's going to fulfill everything that he's promised to do. Part of that includes the full eradication of sin from ourselves and all of creation. And because that is true, we ought to be motivated today to live soberly, righteously, and godly. In other words, we ought to be motivated to live in self-control today because Christ is coming back. In 2 Peter 3.11, Peter says it this way, since all these things, referring to the creation of the world, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? John says it this way in 1 John 2.28, Little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Jesus Christ is coming. We look ahead to His coming. And as we look ahead to His coming, we ought to be moved today to live for Him. Especially in this area of self-control. 
We ought today to, be, to, to desire to not be controlled by our passions, to not be controlled by our emotions or our impulses, but instead to be controlled by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us as Christians. That ought to move us. Christ is coming back. Are you living under the control of the Holy Spirit today? Or are you living and being dominated by your own desires and impulses? So how are you doing today? Are you controlled by the Spirit of God? Or are you trying your best to live by your own willpower? To control your own impulses? and Keep everything in balance? If you're trying to do that, I just ask, how's it working out? My experience tells me it doesn't. And it's not. You might be able to keep things together for a little while, but sooner or later, you'll find your life is just like a car that's been driven onto a flooded roadway. The water is beginning to carry it away. And just as you seem to get control in one area, you'll lose control in another area. Things ultimately just spin out of control. The solution is not trying harder, bearing down and determining that we're going to get a grip on our life. We're going to just, if I can just reset enough, I can just kind of get things figured out, it'll all come together. That's not the solution. The solution is to humble yourself before God. Repent. And trust in Jesus Christ and His grace. His grace is sufficient to save you from your sins. And His grace is also sufficient to teach you to live with self-control and submission to the Holy Spirit. This morning, we need to recognize the sin of a lack of self-control. We need to repent and receive God's grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, easy to make excuses for ourselves when it comes to lack of self-control. We all have things that we desire. We all have areas of weakness in our life and everybody has them so it's easy to kind of compare with others and, and just say, well, it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to realize that we, if we are children of God, if we've been saved by Jesus Christ, Lord, we, we have been called to live in Holy Spirit-empowered self-control. We've been called to submit to you in every way and not to be dominated by our desires, our emotions, our impulses, our feelings, but instead, Lord, to be completely and totally surrendered to your Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would get a hold of our hearts today. Cause us to uh, to, to confess the sin uh, where we have gotten out of control and submit those areas of our life to you. Lord, I pray that you would transform us, that your grace would teach us to be, uh, to be self-controlled. Lord, I pray that if there's one here this morning who's never uh, trusted in Christ to be saved, they realize that they can't control their life. They can't control their own emotions, their own impulses and their desires, but they're controlled by them. And the only hope is to turn to Christ. Lord, I pray that they would today. In Jesus' name, amen.